Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 25-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Shalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. First in the feedback segment are options for CCTV. Now, you may remember uh, a week or so ago, we had a listener that wrote in that said, hey, I'm trying to get coverage out to the front of my house. The situation, though, is... That my house, uh, the front of my house, is a good long ways away from where the actual house is. And so he, would, he was considering burying fiber, uh, but he really wanted to try to keep the project under 500 bucks or, or something uh, somewhere in that, that neighborhood. Or maybe it's 1000 bucks. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of options that you can do in that price range. But a listener writes in, Charlie uh, writes in with a couple of thoughts that I hadn't thought of, one of which is a LoRa network. It's used for more frequently recently in the farming sector, but it would be great for low bandwidth. It would also not only be suitable for JPEG or compressed photo transmission, um, but it would check out, you could check out places like Amazon, eBay, AliExpress, or lower networking gear. And indeed, it turns out that you can actually buy these boxes um, for under $100. Uh, so that could definitely be an option for you. Uh, some of us other suggestions, long Ethernet runs with some cheap five uh, you know, gig switches and stuff like that. All those would work. Um, but the problem is once you get to the point or rolling out your own 1G mobile network, obviously these kinds of things are possible. But by the time you get done with the investment of infrastructure, you're going to be well over the cost. Um, that it would cost just to bury fiber. Um, but I thought the LoRa network uh, was, a, was a pretty decent suggestion, so we threw it in there. I'll have some links for you in the show notes you can check out to learn more, L-O-R-A. But thanks, Charlie, for sending that in. Our second email comes in today from Jeremy. Jeremy says, hey, Noah, I've been running a NextCloud instance for my household for about a year. It's worked out great, and I'm very happy with my overall setup. Traffic 2, reverse proxy, ZFS for data storage, duplicity for offsite cloud backup. The fact that it's been working so well, even my extended family now wants to create accounts. Now, this is great, but it's getting tedious to manually reset passwords and such. I'd like to integrate NextCloud with email to do some of the account administration uh, and make that a little bit more automated. Do you have any tips on the best way to do this? I don't really want to pay for a second ProtonMail account or use Gmail, but everyone seems to warn against running my own mail server. I love the show. Keep up the great work that you do for the FOSS community. Thanks, Jeremy. So uh, that's a great question, Jeremy. There's a couple different routes you can go. Uh, obviously, one way to do it is to go ahead and get an, a, an email account on a mail provider, and you can simply sign in. Now, there's a couple of problems you're going to run into. First of all, most mail providers don't want to be used as a mail sending service, and so a lot of them uh, throw up some barriers if you try and use them in this way. Another option might be to use something like SparkPost. SparkPost is a mail sending service, and that's really what you're looking for here, Jeremy. You don't really necessarily need to be able to respond to emails. What you need is NextCloud to be able to speak email, to be able to talk to your existing users using their email service or their email client. Um, and SparkPost does that. They have very competitive pricing. In fact, the test for SparkPost is up to 50,000 emails. So unless you think that you and your extended family, uh, you know, maybe you're Catholic, if you, if you need 50,000 emails a month, then, you know, 
then, might not, then you're going to have to pay a little bit of money. But under that, uh, and even then it's only like 20 bucks, but under 50,000 emails a month, you're absolutely going to be able to get away with using something like sparkpulse.com. So uh, check it out. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. They support sending mail through SMTP or the API key. When we roll things out like on Linux Delta for the signups for the form or the, um, excuse me, the wiki, um, all those kind of services that require the ability to send mail, uh, SparkPost is a great way to do it. They also offer some analytics so you can get kind of an idea if you're using them the way that they're intended to be used, not necessarily just for a small, you know, uh, small Nextcloud instance, but if you're using them in the way to reach massive audiences, they do have um, some API stuff and, and analytics that you can tie into to try to get a better idea of your of your audience and, and how they're responding. So it's it's a service we've used a number of times, and I've been very happy with them. So I, I would check out sparkpost.com. Our third email comes in from the Linux Ninja. He says, hi, Noah. As you know, I'm a fan of OpenSense. It has HAProxy built in, and I use it to run multiple SSL-enabled sites in my home, things like Jenkins, ChefServer, GitLab Matrix, etc. I find this to be a great solution, being on a single IP address at home and wanting to host several services, all on port 443, OpenSense has Let's Encrypt service built in for minting the certs fully automated without intervention. I use Cloudflare as my DNS, so the Let's In plugin lets DNS verification and creates the text records on the fly for SSL cert verification. Of course, all those backend servers are currently VMs on my Arch Linux hypervisor. Thanks, Linux Ninja. So first of all, I love when people write in and talk about their setups. I don't like it when they outgeek me, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, the, you know, the reality is that th- I've seen that OpenSense is much faster to pivot um, than other projects. We started looking when we switched to PFSense. I know you and I share this in common uh, work. We both use PFSense. Um, uh, P- P- PFSense has some central management projects out there. OpenSense has more though. And when we, f- when I'm looking at integration into other projects, what I'm finding and running into is that OpenSense seems to be by far the more open of the two projects. They're also a little more friendly towards virtualization, which has always struck me kind of silly that, that NetGate um, comes off with a, with a really strong stance that they really don't want you to virtualize PFSense. They really want you to just run it on their hardware. And I can understand if you're in the market for a hardware device, why you, why you might want to do that, why you might want to pay Netgear for a supported hardware device. I think it makes a lot of sense in that circumstance, but I'm not quite convinced that that's always the right way to go for everybody. And I think if you already have the time and money invested into an, a virtual infrastructure and you already have a, a working hypervisor, it's going to make sense at some point to start virtualizing um, things like, your your security gateway is, you know, then every time you upgrade your virtual server, your router is getting a free hardware upgrade, so to speak. Um, but uh, I, I've not had a chance to use, do a proper review. Kenny Schmidt, I should have introduced, is in with in hanging out in the studio with me today. Now, we've actually used an open OpenSense router once in production. Um, and in a pretty serious production environment, that actually, it was a hotel full of college students. And uh, they said, we uh, we got a contract to house a bunch of college students that are going to be doing remote learning in the classroom, so we need the best network that money can buy, and we want it done by Friday. Uh, and it was turned out we didn't have a lot of the equipment that we were going to need to get that done uh, to that scale quickly, and so OpenSense ended up filling uh, filling the, the gap for a little bit. But as so far as I remember, it worked well enough. I mean, and like I say, it was a pretty decent production test. There was some heavy load put on that router. Yeah, what do you say? There's probably at least... 50 college students in that entire building. And I mean, you yep. think of the workload of a college student, what's at Netflix, you know, well, and our streaming aver- videos we, and all that kind of stuff. We were averaging at the time that I was looking, we were averaging four to six devices per 
uh, per user that we knew yeah. about or per. So, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a bit crazy, but yeah, the, you know, the, the thing I like about competitors in the field is that any, whatever open sense is doing, it forces the bar to be higher for PF sense. And so, so far I've not really seen anything that makes me say, well, I just couldn't use PF sense or I just couldn't use open sense. I think both of them are fantastic platforms. I, I, I agree with Linux Ninja. I think that open sense is, is more suited for the home environment. I think that PF sense is more suited for the business environment, but if we ever reach such a time that we could standardize on one, I, I think that would be great too. Our fourth email comes in today from Lily's. And uh, Lily's writes and says, Hi, Noah, I understand that you're using OS Ticket for customer support. And I was wanting to know whether or not OS Ticket supports the external LDAP authentication, preferably open, oh, excuse me, identity for uh, authentication, preferably open connect, because I use Keycloak to keep authentication and authorized central for all services across my organization, Nextcloud Jenkins, and our own backend API. Thanks and love your shows. Yes, um, there's a number of different uh, authentication uh, protocols that you can tie into. It does support third-party authentication protocols. Most commonly, it's done with LDAP. And um, that, and so uh, there there's just a plugin in the plugin section of uh, OS Ticket, and you can add... The, the plugin for the kind of authentication system you're using. So, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would, I would totally recommend that you check out and take a look at OS Ticket. I there's it leaves a little bit to be desired um, trying to work on it from a mobile standpoint, but as far as what the system actually does, it's fantastic. Our pick of the week this week is actually the Core Infrastructure Best Practices Badge, and you know our thoughts and prayers go out to Dan Cohn, who passed away a little over a week ago. He was the former Chief Operating Officer of uh, the Linux Foundation, and Dan did some really amazing things, uh, one of which was to launch the Linux Foundation's core infrastructure initiative. And this is this was an idea to fix a problem that we have in the open source world. Code being out in the open isn't good enough. It's a great first step, and it allows us to do things like audit the code and review it for security and improvements and those kinds of things. So it's definitely a first step, and it's absolutely a prerequisite of auditing code. But just having it open isn't good enough. You have to have competent people looking at the code. We have to have a way to fund good, competent people to pay them to look at the code. And then we have to pay them to fix things when they come across vulnerabilities and patching. We need to have a process for all of that. And and and. So this is what the core infrastructure project is. It's it's a project that was created after the vulnerability of Heartbleed, which is a very serious memory vulnerability that allowed you to steal the contents of RAM in servers. And of course, it was a vulnerability found in a free and open source SSL project. Um, and so from that time, it was clear that free and open source projects needed funding to be able to continue to maintain themselves and because they are much of the functioning internet relies on free and open source technology. And so that's what the core infrastructure um, project is about. And that's what Dan helped get off the ground. Um, more recently, he's been involved with a with the Core Infrastructure Initiative's Best Practices Badge. And the Best Practices Badge is a way for free and, and open source software projects to show that they do, in fact, follow best practices. And projects can voluntarily self-certify, doesn't cost any money, but using this web application to explain how they follow each of their best practices, the CIA Best Practices Badge, inspired by uh, many badges available to projects on GitHub, consumers of the badge can quickly assess which 
Free and open source projects are following best practices and as a result are likely to produce higher quality and more secure software. And so I, I never agree with telling people um, what they have to do with their projects, but certainly it's a good idea to have some oversight on code and establish some goalposts that can then be later discussed and moved as needed. And it gives the wider ecosystem a, a shared set of expectations so we understand what we can expect from software. I think it drives the overall quality of the software that we produce up. And so our, again, our hearts and prayers go out. Dan, he passed away. Um, but the, the things that he have, has accomplished over at the Linux Foundation and with the core infrastructure project um, are going to live on for quite some time. Our gadget of the week. I know that everybody's probably sick of hearing about USB Type-C chargers, and I promise you there's a really good reason why this one's better than all the other ones I've talked about before. So this is the RAV Power. And the, what I like about it right off the bat is that I get two Type-C charging ports. Now, that's not necessarily unique. Anchor has had one, and um, there's another company, the one that I've been carrying in my backpack, made by a company called Satachi. Um, they both had two, but what makes this one different? First of all, it's about a half of the size of the Satachi. This thing is, I, it's, it's, it looks like a tiny little battery pack for your phone. And then it has a... a, a a little figure eight cord that goes on the back that you provide AC power. And then on the front, you get two outputs. You get a 45 watt output and an 18 watt output. Also the RAV4, it's the construction on this thing is absolutely fantastic. That's, I mean, it's yeah. just built like a I tank. Take a look that, at that as I was sitting here, I was playing with it and it's just the build quality on it. It's incredible. It's got a nice feel in your hand. It's got I, a weight to it. I carry on, on an average day, I carry three type C different uh, chargers in my backpack. I carry that. The, now I've switched to the RAV4 from the Satachi. I also carry an Apple one because it's the only one that I found that works works on 100% of devices to include a persnickety HPs that don't want to work with other Type-C chargers. <laughs> um, and then I, I carry yeah, just a, a, a really cheap uh, Anchor 45-watt one just for the, for, the, for the people that say, hey, I need to charge this device or that device. <laughs> and what's been amazing to me is every time I need to buy a new charger, I can go out and purchase the same types of Type-C cables. And more and more manufacturers, though, are coming up with the expensive ends. And so if you want my honest opinion the truth is apple makes the best type c cables they're out there but if you're looking for a device to carry in your backpack and you want to charge all your type c things the the little rav power it's so small and so well built that if i had to carry four of them in my backpack i'd be able to charge eight devices and it would still take up less room than my traditional dell power brick so the rav power will have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknowashow.com i bought it off of amazon it was uh, i think it was like 39 49 bucks it wasn't very expensive absolutely a fantastic uh, piece of technology and uh, you know it's it's gotten to the point now where i leave the house i need to charge on any given day two or three different type c electronics the world's rapidly approaching a point where you'll be able to charge everything but your iphone uh with uh, with the type c charger so this is probably the best one out there if you need multiple charging ports Encryption should be for everyone. That's been Let's Encrypt's mission from the beginning. You want to be able to go to a site and you should be able to trust that no one is snooping onto your connection. Well, that's done with HTTPS or SSL. Let's Encrypt is a provider of SSL cert certificates. Essentially what they are is a central authority, a place that browsers can look to, 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 to say, hey, is this the same server that I have visited in the past, and does that person actually own this domain? Well, they're up against a bit of a problem because when they first launched as a certificate authority, obviously they couldn't operate under their own authority because nobody trusted them because they didn't exist. So they had to do what's known as cross-signing. And cross-signing is the ability for Let's Encrypt to work with another uh, certificate authority 
that uh, that signs Let's Encrypt for them so that they could get started. So that happened. And of course, later on, they applied and eventually did get certification to become their own root certificate authority. Um, now, all major browsers recognize Let's Encrypt as, as a, an authority. And indeed, if you spin up things like NextCloud or or uh, or pull a number of containers down from Docker Hub or sign up for uh, you know a matrix instance, all of those things are now working, of course, with Let's Encrypt. So it's done amazing things to bring privacy and security throughout the web. There is a problem, though, and the problem is that obviously the the original certificate that they were using that cross that they were cross signed with a with another CA expires uh, at the end of this year, as September first, twenty twenty one. And so, and th- this certificate was adi- issued from the from uh, Ident Trust, and so the problem here is that. Certain versions of Android, ones that are running Android version 7.1 or, or, excuse me, earlier than 7.1, are not going to respect the Let's Encrypt's new uh, authority. And so 33.8% of Android devices are going to start getting certificate errors when they visit sites that use Let's Encrypt. And this is disappointing on a whole multitude of levels. The first thing that's disappointing about this is we're still in this bucket in 2020. We're still at a point where Google hasn't figured out how to update the devices that people rely on. And it doesn't look like there's really any light at the end of the tunnel. It looks like this is something that Google's going to struggle with for some time. Quote, some software that hasn't been updated since 2016, approximately when our root certificate was accepted by the root program, still don't trust our root certificate. ISRG root X1. Most notably, this will include versions of Android prior to 7.1.1. That means that older versions of Android will no longer trust certificates issued by Let's Encrypt. Currently, 66.2% of Android devices are running 7.1 or above. That means that 33.8% of Android devices will eventually start getting certificate errors when visiting a site that use Let's Encrypt certificate. But what can we do about this? Well, we'd love to improve the Android update situation, but there's not much we can do. We also can't afford to buy the whole world a new phone. Could we get another cross-signing certificate, cross-signature? We've explored this option, but it seems unlikely. It's a large risk for a CA to cross-sign another CA certificate since they ultimately become responsible for everything that the CA asking them to sign does. That means that the recipient of the cross-signature has to follow all of the procedures laid out by the cross-signing CA. It's important for us to be able to stand on our own. Also, the Android update doesn't seem to be going away. If we commit ourselves to supporting old Android versions, we would commit ourselves to seeking cross-signatures from CAs indefinitely. And so the moral of the story is, if you have an older version, first of all, if you have a, a phone that is not getting regular updates, you probably need to get a new phone. If you're like me and just cannot stand to live on iOS, then that just means that you have to be very picky about the phones that you're buying. Uh, if you're on an older version of Android, they recommend that you install, get this, Firefox Mobile, which supports Android 5.0 and above as of the time of this writing. Now, why does installing Firefox help? Well, on an Android phone, the built-in browser, the list of root certificates comes from the operating system, which is, of course, out of date on older phones. However, the Firefox is currently unique among other browsers because, guess what, it ships with its own trusted root certificate. So anyone who installs the latest Firefox version gets the benefit of the latest up-to-date trusted certificate authorities, even if the operating system is out of date. Now, I want to make a plug here. They depend on contributions uh, uh, from people 
to provide their services. And so if you want to sponsor Let's Encrypt, then send an email to sponsor at letsencrypt.org. And I would encourage you to do that if you're in a position that you can do so. Um, this is an organization that is trying to bring a more secure web to you. And and again, you see this, a lot of people are quick to rag on, on Firefox, and it is disappointing some of the executive decisions that they've had to make and, and, and the, the layoffs that they've suffered and kind of some of the direction that that project has gone. But this is an organization that is your only chance to be able to continue to use a site in which the site owner doesn't have to pay somebody else to be able in, to encrypt your connection to theirs. This is one of the most trivial things that we should be asking our technology to do. And right now, thanks to the garbledygook of corporations, it's gotten mucked up. And you can't just set up a web server and have somebody on the phone that they got with their phone service be able to access it securely. And that's disappointing. And there's a number of reasons and there's a number of different places that we can assign blame to that. But that's disappointing. And so there's there's two takeaways from this story. The first is, um, obviously, if you maintain a server that has Let's Encrypt, you should be aware of this. 7.11 or earlier, if you have users that, that heavily rely on some service or something that you do, you want to be aware of that September date. I believe it is September 1st of 2021. The other side of that is we sh we need to start demanding more from our device manufacturers. When we buy devices, we expect them to have updates because problems like this are not going to go away. They're only going to get more prevalent, especially with IPv6 and everything just kind of being out on the Internet. So we should be aware of this. Undoubtedly, the largest news, uh, whether directly related to Linux or not, is Apple. Uh, releasing their first ARM devices. Now, everybody is on ARM these days. Indeed, the functionality for what you get for the dollars that you spend is absolutely mind-bending. But Apple has officially released their first computers on ARM. And I'm not an Apple fan, and I won't be buying one of these, but it's important to recognize what is happening in our industry. First of all, Apple announced native apps. And this is Apple's attempt to uh, solidify their app infrastructure. Right, And so what they're going to do is offer an application that offers code that will run on both Intel and ARM. Now, the new CPU that they've designed uh, that's going to be based on, 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 or that is based on ARM infrastructure, I should say, is called the M1. And it's going to sh ship with one of two devices. You can get it with their MacBook Air for $999, or you can get it with their Mac Mini for $699. Now, what's interesting here, Mac Air stays about the same price. The Mac Mini drops by 100 bucks. Why that? Why we care about that in the Linux world or why we care about in the open source world is they've dropped the price of the Mac Mini by 100 bucks by switching to ARM. And you can, you can bet if it's being released by Apple, it, it delivers a very similar, if not identical, user experience that the Intel variants are going to have, uh, at, least at, at least at the lower end. We'll get to that in a second. But ultimately, what this is going to come down to and how you interpret this news and how we react to it depends on what your expectations are. If you want a cheap device with more flexibility, then this, then this does not impress you because none of these are inexpensive and there is not much flexibility. If you want the best performance for the least amount of dollars, that $699 Mac, uh, Mac Mini starts to speak, right? But if you want a really powerful device, I don't think Apple quite nailed it with ARM yet. Now, this is taken straight from the Geek Lab, which, by the way, uh, Dalton Durst and, and Dan Williams, two of my favorite people uh, to interact with. Both of them have excellent insight. And Dalton was on Telegram. Dan was on Matrix. But guess what? Uh, we can have platform agnostic technological discussions because why hashtag Matrix? I don't need a reason. That's why. There's two big advantages that Apple has. And 
it, it is first that their ARM cores are among the most powerful chips for the tasks that their devices commonly perform. And the second is that they make the hardware and the software. And so Dalton goes on to explain that the code that's executed most often, well, Apple knows exactly what path that code is going to take through their silicon. And it's going to be a long time, if ever, that we in the open source community get that kind of access and that kind of integration uh, to, to silicon and the ability to code stuff to work directly on those chips. And larger and larger companies continue to control more and more of the technology space. And this is what Apple is doing. And th- this is going to be very efficient on the low end, right? The person that walks into the store and says, my golly gee, I want to be able to browse Facebook and I want to check my email and I want to be able to respond um, to, to work emails and stuff like that. Those are the kind of people that are going to be very happy with this device. The kind of people that are not going to be very happy with this device are the kind of people that walk in and expect a powerhouse that are expecting to get real work done. But what this is, make no mistake about it, it's an iPhone dressed up like a Mac. But they are trying to merge that experience because what we're learning is that people don't want to be on computers. And this is an important place we're at in technological history. There's a record number of people that are now working from home. And a record number of those people who didn't have a work device provided to them because their current job didn't provide them a a laptop, those people are now in the market to buy a new phone or a laptop or a tablet. And we now exist in a world that because no other proprietary company wants to work with whatever your name is, I don't care, it wasn't invented here, the only thing you can really count on every user having is a web browser. And these days, Zoom. Everybody has a web browser in Zoom. But it turns out that works just dandy because Apple and Google and every other company under God's green earth can deliver a better experience if they're in control of their own infrastructure. And Linux makes that very simple for them with containers that run an infrastructure and run more reliably than their operating system ever could or their competition's operating system over in Washington ever could. By the way, they switched over to Linux. So today in 2020, Apple made a bet. Apple made a bet that you don't care what's on that device. And that you don't care how that software works, you just want it to work. And if that's you, if you just want a device that works and you don't care how it works, and you trust Apple, and you believe that Apple is going to keep you safe and secure just like they've promised, if that's you, more power to you. But to me, this feels like they're centralizing around iOS, they're centralizing around the iPhone. They've had incredible success in that market. They make the best devices for what their market wants, and they're trying to pull you into that ecosystem, into the idea of universal apps. And I think people are moving away from the PC because they just want to be connected to an online experience. But if you listen to the show, it's because you want to explore technology, and it's because you want to understand how technology works, and you want to leverage it to improve your life. You don't want to become a slave to it. So there's very little, if any, here to explore. To me, this is a utility knife. And we're not, that, we're not there yet today with the Pine Book, and so I'm not making that comparison because it wouldn't be a fair comparison to make. But today is the start of the roots of a new Apple because they don't just want to be your phone. They want to be your everything. And the more technology that's controlled by the fewer companies with the less outside influence that we have, and you, you add to that a closed design, 
That's, that's not a recipe for success. Now, the flip side of this, right, there are some bright minds that thought of things like containers and orchestration and, and automation tools, and they built those things for the likes of the next clouds and the home assistants and the C files and Matrix and Jellyfin and FreeNAS and Volumio and all of the things that you need to do if you want to host that infrastructure yourself and you want to deliver an experience to yourself or your family members or your extended family members, and you don't need Alpha's help to do that. And that's a powerful thing. And by the way, that same technology is available to you at a fraction of the cost because you can put that stuff on a Raspberry Pi. You can put that stuff on your Raspberry Pi 400. You can run on your keyboard now. That's where we're at. I think that's really exciting. And so, I, you know, a huge thank you and a huge bout of appreciation goes out to places like the Raspberry Pi Foundation and Pine64 because they're the people that are making the technology that you're still going to be able to own. Seven seven or eight fifty five four fifty no. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Stephen, thanks for hanging in there. Hey, Stephen, welcome to Ask Noah. Well, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've got a question uh, or a couple of questions about uh, file server at home. Okay. Uh, we've kind of ex- uh, met the limit in our laptops, hard drive, and we need to take some stuff off to be uh, an archive, and I thought um, a Raspberry Pi and uh, a couple of hard drives would take care of my needs, or at least as currently, um, and just use the uh, the native file system in uh, Linux. Uh, I don't know if that's the best idea. You know, maybe TrueNAS or uh, Open Media Vault, something like that might be better. Um, and I, I wanted your opinion on that for sure yeah i i personally if it were me i would go with something like open media vault not necessarily because there's any advantage from a from the actual file share point of view right it doesn't really matter if open media vault's creating a sift share to a, a linux partition or, or if we're doing that by hand um, but what open media vault does allow you to do is easily apply updates easily change the name of a share change permissions those kinds of things it gives you a management infrastructure around managing that share um, and again you know flashing open media vault to a raspberry pi is no big deal so that's probably the route I would go. If I wasn't going to do that, then I would probably do something like as bare bones of a Linux distro as I could get. And then I would simply just make an NFS share to the machine that I am using. And it would just kind of be like a, I guess, a, a, a remote network drive and even simpler than a NAS. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now my, uh, can I ask another question on back Please? of that? Uh, I was uh, thinking that, uh, to replace a, an awful lot of drives that we have right now that we don't take care of very well, put it all on one, and that would be drive one. But what I would like to have is a like a drive two and a drive three that I could rotate and back up the first one uh, so I could get it off-site. Not so much worried about fire or flood, but me messing up the system. Sure. Uh, we'll, we'll open Media Vault take care of that i mean can i just pull one out and put one in or do i have do i need different software for that or what's the best way to do that? well so you you called in on an interesting night because we're actually going to get to to backup solutions that's our main segment for tonight so i'll have a couple of other options there too but but to, to answer your question directly yes there are backup utilities built into open media vault switching drives isn't quite as straightforward as you might think it is because um with 
the way that UUIDs and and where they mount to and all of that stuff will matter uh, if you're using scripts to back up. And of course, that will depend on how you're backing up, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I you, it is absolutely possible. And indeed, there's a lot of businesses that do this. They'll back up nightly um, and they'll swap out Monday's drive, Tuesday's drive, Wednesday's drive, Thursday's drive, Friday's drive. And then at the end of the week, they dump to an offsite location. And at the end of the month, they dump to a third location. Okay, and you're going to cover that in a little bit. Yep, yep, we'll get to that shortly here. Then I'll let you get to it. Thanks so much for taking my call. Yeah, I appreciate it. Again, 855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. SCP is being deprecated. Now, SCP is very integrated into most Linux systems, and it's going to be a very difficult task to rip out. Um, it was designed to be as much like CP as possible. So it was designed to be very simple and, and mimic the command line infrastructure that uh, that CP did. It uses the SSH authentication method with connecting between machines and encrypts the data in flight. So generally it's thought as being of as secure. But there are situations, especially where there's little to no trust between the two endpoints of the connection, then there are some attacks that can uh, that can be sent against. Uh, SCP. So CVE 2019-6111 is an example of this. The client side asks for, let's say, file a.txt. The remote side instead uh, delivers .bashrc. And when that happens, the client side doesn't check this. It simply overwrites that file instead. And so in the OpenSSH 8.0 release, they fixed this by comparing the file name with the remote server, and that was to make sure that it was what it actually asked for. But the release announcement also stated that the SCP protocol is outdated and inflexible and not really able to be fixed. And so they recommended migrating away from SCP. And so the question becomes, what do we replace SCP with? And the usual answer to that is either SFTP or RSync. We're going to talk a lot about RSync later on in the episode. There's positives and downsides to both of this. But there's a bigger issue here, and that is that a lot of people, have integrated SCP both into scripts as well as it just into their noggin, right? They sit down, they go to top. I do it all the time. Copying something from a server, just SCP flows out of my hand before I can even think what happened. And this is a problem. And so wouldn't it be cool if we had a version of SCP that doesn't suffer from the same, from the current commands problems, but offers a little bit more flexibility and security? Well, it turns out a, a guy by the name of Jacob Jollin is working on such a thing. It's an SCP command that uses the SFTP protocol under the hood. At this point, it's it, it, it's claimed to work for the most basic usage scenarios. Some options such as TAC3, which copies files between two remote hosts, the way that the local machine are not supported. Features like backtick extension will not be supported, even though some users evidently think that this expansion might have legitimate uses. Um, Jelen says that he recently proposed switching the Fedora distribution to this SCP replacement. The responses have been mostly positive. Some users do worry that SFTP might be slower than SCP, but it doesn't appear that it has any serious benchmarking uh, that's been done yet. And so even if it is a bit slower, the version of SCP that avoids the security problems with the current implementation while not breaking existing scripts and so on and so forth, um, that seems like that's going to be a welcome change. So it's something we want to keep our eyes on, but also another reason why, if you're not doing it yet, you'll want to uh, experiment um, and perhaps switch over to using rsync to transfer data back and forth.
GIMP 2.99.2 has been released this week. Uh, GTK, this, they're basing the new interface off of the GTK 3 interface with native support for Wayland and high DPI displays. That's important because I'm telling you, every time I walk around Best Buy, it seems like there are more and more laptops and more and more monitors that are 4K and higher. And so it's important that that all of these apl- applications natively support this right out of the box. Um, plugins are now possible with Python 3, JavaScript, Lua, and Vala. The first difference that you're going to notice, it will be visual. You're going to notice that GIMP uh, got a bit more of a modern look, and it uses some of the new widgets. Instead of uh, redeveloping GTK2, as well as client-side window decorations on various dialogues. But the most aesthetic differences are far from being the main appeal of GTK3. That, of course, is the high pixel density displays. One of the issues with GTK2 was the absent support for high pixel density displays, small screens with high resolution or big screens with extremely high resolutions, which has become more widespread. Especially among graphics professionals, GIMP 2.10 came with a parallel workaround, which was acceptable in only some limited cases, but not really appropriate for the intense uh, use of the software. So GTK3 brings proper support for GIMP, so it will follow a system set scale settings. Um, They're also done improvements to the input devices, and they're talking about tablets and pen devices. So in GIMP 2, their support had a lot of shortcomings. You had to plug the tablet before you started GIMP up. You had to enable the device explicitly in the settings, and you were unplugging the tablet. You had the instability of the software, even though that was mostly kind of worked around with the GTQ, or GTK excuse me, 2 developers uh, in the 2.8 release. But GTK 3, the GIMP 3, hence the first development of the release, is bringing hot plug support, which means that you can start GIMP, then you plug in your tablet, and you're pretty much done to ready to draw. It comes complete with pressure, tilt, everything, the whole nine yards. So GTK3, they inherit the CSS-based theme for pad. Unfortunately, that means that it's going to break backwards uh, compatible themes. So themes that were, that were used prior to GIMP 3.0, you're not going to be able to use those. On the bright side, uh, pretty much everything uses CSS based themes now so my proton mail is using it um my my the the uh, both of the wikis are using it um so it, this is probably the the way forward the port to gtk3 should normally give wayland support on linux for free and it mostly does but unfortunately there were a few bugs that have been reported with GIMP running on Wayland. Some of them are clearly blockers for releasing GIMP 3, such as various weird UI bugs or memory leaks. Others are less serious but are still a bit embarrassing, like the ones where the splash screen is broken on the high DPA displays because Wayland doesn't really report scaling properly. Um, but until these issues is fixed, they don't think that they can cl- they can safely claim that they uh, provide appropriate support on Wayland, but they're grateful for all of the patches and addresses uh, that that have come in, and they'll continue to... It continues to work on this technology. And uh, if you're interested in helping out, there's a list of Wayland-related bugs, um, and you can check those out. We'll have more information for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So our main segment this week is any backup is better than no backup. And we have talked about backup from a commercial IT perspective, but we've not really talked about it from a user perspective. And so, again, in, in the studio with me is Kenny Schmidt, and he deals with uh, helping out um, at Ulta Speed and, and deals a lot on the on the front lines of, of dealing with users and users who have lost data and, and those kinds of things. And so um, this week we're going to be talking about backups. Now, like I said, the first thing, first rule to understand about backups is any backup is better than no backup. If you Anything that you're doing to keep your data in, in, a, in a second place is is better than not having a plan at all. So whatever it is you're doing, keep doing that. But in an ideal world, 
there's a couple of things that should be true. Backups need to be tested before you can truly rely on them. I had a client that backed up uh, a, a bunch of data and had and had meticulously backed up data for years only to find out that actually they were backing up sim links. They were just links to the real data. It wasn't the real data that they were backing up and they lost everything um, despite having all of the scripts and having them all run and, and so on and so forth. The other thing is it should be as automated as possible. I can't count how many people have the perfect backup strategy and they purchased all of the right drives and have them all laid out ready to use but they never actually do them because it's too much work to plug the drives in or connect them or they don't remember the password for this thing or that thing or that this thing didn't work. You have to have them automated so that they happen. My backups that happen at my house happen every single night and it's an automated script that kicks off. I could forget about it for months and it would still get backed up every single month. And then once you have all of those things hit, then you need to decide on a schedule. And so daily is, uh, is, is pretty appropriate if you make changes daily. Weekly is appropriate if you make changes on average weekly. And monthly is appropriate if you make changes monthly. What works for you will depend on how often and how critical your data changes. If it's appointments, for example, in any one appointment, uh, if, if you, if you entered a single appointment and, and, and one day later you lost your data, that would be catastrophic because you would miss that meeting. Well, you need daily backups. You might even need hourly backups. And this is where things like, uh, ZFS snapshotting and ButterFS snapshotting are going to come in and help you out. Ideally, you want your data in three places. And this kind of dovetails nicely to what I was talking about with our caller earlier in the hour. Um, just having your back, your data backed up in a, in, in, in one other spot really doesn't help you because if something were to get corrupted during the backup process and you lost your source data, you would of course have lost your backup data because there were only two sources. And so at a minimum, you should have three places uh, if your data is going to live. And so the primary place, the primary to the backup and the backup to what I would call either the offsite or the cold storage backup. The regular backups purpose is to deal with the stuff we know is going to happen. We know, we know that at some point you're going to delete a file you didn't mean to delete. We know that at some point cryptoware or something is going to infect a system and it's going to cause data corruption or writing. We know that a hard drive is going to fail. These are not things that should surprise you. We know that they're going to happen. They've been happening in IT since the dawn of IT. Um, but... But once we know that those things are going to happen, this is what the first backup is in place for. And this is why I like to have it automated. It happens every single night, so I never lose more than realistically 12 hours of data. That once that once we've mitigated that, and that covers the vast majority of things, that covers all of my kids who have lost stuff, and, oh, no, Dad, I accidentally did this. It covers my wife. Hey, we don't know where this is. It covers all of that. The second thing you run up against is what do you do uh, if your if your if your house burns down or something breaks down or the or the drive backup fails, well, now we want preferably a copy of that data that doesn't exist on site. It exists off site and it's on what we call a cold shelf. The hard drive is disconnected from any power source, any computer. Therefore, there's no way for it to uh, be corrupted, get corrupted, those kinds of things. But now we have all of this data, we have to store it somewhere. So you've got a couple of options. The first option you have is to just buy a drive. So I did a little bit of research on pricing. The Western Digital Red still seems the best price is the 10 terabytes. 10 terabytes you're going to get for $264. That's 26 bucks a terabyte. Uh, if you go down to their four terabytes, it's still $26 per terabyte. So it doesn't really matter if you buy the four terabyte drive or the 10 terabyte drive, you're paying the same price per terabyte. It's just how much space you think you're going to need. If you, if you need as much space as possible, they do have a 14 terabyte Western digital red for $423. But of course that's 
$30 a terabyte. So you're paying $4 more a terabyte. And so what I would do is I'd buy the 10 terabyte drives because they're the cheapest per terabyte. And then I would just start scaling vertically. I would just continue to, uh, to stack them until, um, horizontally, excuse me. I'll just continue to, to, to add drives to that machine until we fill it up. But we still have a problem because we need software that the everyday average user can use. Now, I will tell you that I don't back up my data this way. I back all of my data up with R with rsync, which I'm going to get to in a second. But if that scares you and the command line scares you, I have some options for you. The first is the backup utility that everybody should start with if you've not ever backed up your data before, and that is DejaDupe, um, just known as backup if you have no. Um, it's great for the average user. It's simple to run. It's very reliable, and it's integrated into Nautilus, which means you can just right-click on a file and click on Restore, and it takes you back to the previous version. So this is what I would suggest you start with if you've not done anything else. Now, very simple to use. You're going to choose a backup location, either an external drive, a network location, something like that, and you're going to back your data up. Uh, you can restore it. It works about as you would expect. There is another project out there, though, called TimeShift. And TimeShift uh, uses snapshots based on rsync or ButterFS that uh, allow you to restore to any particular time. Now, this is going to be a lot, uh, this is going to provide a lot of power for distributions like Fedora down the road, taking advantage of ButterFS and what ButterFS is able to do as far as restoring snapshots atomically faster than you would be able to do so with something like rsync. But if you've not used TimeShift before, even if you don't have ButterFS, you can use rsync, which is, I would imagine, what most people uh, would want to to set their system up. Um, but it it has a it has a UI. It has the ability to roll back to snapshots. You can pick up the directories that you want to back up. You can exclude the directories that you don't. Um, and uh, and 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 the UI works well enough. So this is an option for you. Again, if you are trying to uh, uh, kind of deal with backups more from a perspective of oops, I made a mistake. When you get into real backups, like I have 24 terabytes of movies and I don't want to lose them. Um, obviously, I, I probably at that point wouldn't be looking at something like TimeShift. That's where I'm going to get into something very efficient, very clean, something like rsync. rsync has a number of different things that you can do, but AVZ or small a, capital A, uh, 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 excuse me, AVZ, lowercase AVZ, will get you all of the uh, archiving. It will preserve the the uh, the timestamp and, and those kinds of things. It will be verbose about what you're doing. So rsync is going to tell you uh, what's happening. You can also include the tac tac delete and tac tac exclude. Tac tac delete is going to allow you to specify the files uh, that are deleted on the source or also deleted on the destination, which is a little counterintuitive. You wouldn't necessarily think that rsync would work this way, but by default, if you don't run tac tac delete, what's going to happen is you have files one through 10 on your source, and so then it shows up on your destination. If you erase files five through 10, they will still be, and you run rsync again, files 5 through 10 are still going to exist on your backup location because by default it won't remove files that have been removed on our source. So if we add tac-tac-delete, that's going to happen. Tac-tac-exclude will allow us to exclude certain directories, so you might want to exclude things like your trash, so on and so forth. And then there's also the dry run option. This is something you're going to want to do on all of your rsync scripts before you ever put them into production. And what the dry run is, exactly what it sounds like, it gives you the output as if it was going to run that command without actually running that command so you can see what it's going to do. And if you've not used rsync before, this is where you should start. But rsync is pretty simple to do. rsync, tac, avz, uh, and then the source, and then the destination. And it will bring both of those directories 
um, in sync with each other. And so you start with your source, your primary, and go to your backup. And then I run a second backup that goes from my backup to the cold shell storage. Um, And I do this all with rsync. Now, if you say to yourself, Noah, I like rsync, but I need a graphical environment to do it. Well, I have an option for you. Uh, The option is gr sync now this product or project is not actively maintained and so i'm a little hesitant to recommend it but if you're looking for just a straight up ui for rsync the best i can tell it executes all the rsync commands so i don't really know what you would need to update per se but we just got done talking about how we should always have updates and stuff like that and so in full disclosure this is not actively maintained Now, where do you put the storage if you don't want to put it onto a local drive? And that's where a lot of you are thinking, well, I have you covered. You can go with cloud storage. Wait, did Noah just say cloud? Yes. Hold on. Stay with me. There are two ways that you can do this. The first way that you can do this is you can work with a cloud provider that you could potentially trust to store your data. The second thing you could do is not trust any cloud provider, encrypt all your data locally, and then send it up to the cloud. So we'll start working backwards. Let's say that we trusted our provider. You've got essentially uh, two options that I think are, are realistic here. One is Spider Oak, which offers end-to-end encrypted applications on a private blockchain. Um, pricing is 150 gigabytes for six bucks a month, a two terabyte plan for 14 bucks a month, or a five terabyte plan for $30 a month. Again, they don't have the keys you encrypt locally, but you're using their client and their software and their interface and their platform and all of that. Um, The second way that you can do it is with a company called Tarsnap. Tarsnap is backups for the truly paranoid. Uh, Tarsnap has a very simple pricing structure. It's just 25 cents per gigabyte. Obviously, Your data can only be accessed with your personal keys. The client source code is available. um, So they're a completely open company. um, And their their pricing is very transparent. It's just 25 cents per gigabyte. So as much you want to store, as much you want to buy from them, they will store it for you in an encrypted fashion. But what about privacy, Noah? What if I want to store somewhere else? I can get much cheaper storage from places like uh, Google Drive or OneDrive. um, But I care about my privacy. What can we do? Well, our clone. R-Clone is your answer. R-Clone is a command line program to manage files on cloud storage. So it has feature-rich alternatives to cloud vendors' uh, web storage interfaces. They support over 40 storage product support. Uh, they support over 40 cloud storage support products. Uh, they include S3 object stores, business and consumer file storage services, as well as transfer protocols. And uh, so I, I went through a basic setup here just to kind of see how this works. I wouldn't personally put anything that I really valued on top of cloud storage, but when I'm looking at pricing out what it costs to actually purchase a drive and when I look at what it costs to actually back your data up properly with proper security, I see that it's very expensive and I see how uh, how inexpensive it would be to, to, to be able to back up to to Google or AWS. And so I figured this is probably worth, um, if, if you're on a tight budget, a, a way to do it. It's pretty simple. Our clone space config walks you through a little wizard says, you know, create a new share. I want to create Google drive, select Google drive, select a number for encryption. It's interesting. If you're on a headless machine, you can tell it and then it will spit everything out in text. If you're on a web browser, then it just prompts you to open a web browser and authenticate that way to Google drive. But once it's authenticated, you can encrypt data and push it up to Google Drive and store it that way. And, of course, you could script backups to do the same. I prefer to buy my own drives. I prefer to deal with my own space requirements. And But I recognize that not all budgets may have that option. Um, 
whatever you do, I highly suggest that you you choose a secure encryption password or passphrase. I suggest that you store that secure encryption password or passphrase in something like a KeePassDB or a Bitwarden DB and, uh, and make sure that that's not available um, to anybody else. But I think really what we're where I kind of get excited about this, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, Kenny, because like I say, you deal a lot more with the with with the customer side. It's very easy for me to sit here behind a mic and say, well, this is what would be ideal, but you're dealing with the customers that are like, yeah, we didn't really buy that backup solution, and now I'm missing my QuickBooks file or whatever else. Um, Google Drive and Amazon, these are inexpensive solutions. They're, you know, in some cases, just a couple of bucks a month. Um that it provides an opportunity for people to utilize those services without necessarily giving up their privacy because of some of the encryption tools that exist. But I question, do you think average users uh, could tackle that? Or do you think for the most part, you have to be somebody that's dedicated to privacy and security to even, to even look into this stuff, much less take these steps. I think there's a little bit on both sides. I think there's stuff we can do on the community side to make it simpler for the end user. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you need to have just a little bit of uh, interest in it, at least. You want to at least have a slight understanding of it. Um, but even just with the an ounce of curiosity, I think, goes a long ways, right? I think at the end of the day, if you're actually interested in this kind of thing, you'll put the effort in to at least learn the basic simple steps. For sure. Computer Kid joins us in our interactive Jitsi room. Hey, Computer Kid, welcome to the show. Hey, can you hear me? I can. So I had a question today, actually for the past month-ish. So I've been working on getting a single sign-on solution for my Nextcloud, Jellyfin, um, some various Linux laptops, all that stuff. And I was looking at LDAP and free IPA and all that stuff. But I wanted your take on what the best solution would be. I want to put this on my Ubuntu 20.04 server, which is actually just a desktop. And I've tried LDAP, but that seems a bit complicated, so I just wanted to see if it was the right thing before I dived all the way in. LDAP is the most universal. I will tell you, if I was doing it today, I would go with Free IPA. Free IPA is a fantastic identity management product um, that is heavily supported by Red Hat um, and has for fantastic performance in in real world scenarios the the um, LDAP is is great if you want to if you want to work with a lot of stuff that maybe is or isn't open um, and uh, but but I think if you're looking for an all-in management solution uh, I would I would go the free IPA route for sure does free IPA talk LDAP to yeah, so it, it's interesting. The, I I don't know exactly what the exactly where the overlap is. What I can tell you is that Active Directory, which is which is the which was the predominant identity management thing that Free IPA was coming against, is primarily made of a combination of uh, of LDAP and one other Kerberos authentication, and so Free IPA kind of took that on head on. So I'm not sure if they're implementing the same things under the hood in just a different way or if it's something entirely different. Yeah, so uh, uh, Tiny6969 uh, six, nine, six, nine, er, nine, six, in the chat room says FreeIP is using LDAP and Kerberos underneath. So yeah, it's essentially, it's they're doing this, they're accomplishing the same thing that Microsoft was trying to accomplish with Active Directory. But the thing is, it it's totally cross-platform and has a really nice uh, management interface. So how would you run that if it was your problem? 
Well, I would set up a uh, I would set up a, a dedicated box to, to to run free IPA, and then I would just start enrolling clients into that free IPA to get my head wrapped around the actual authentication method and how that works from one client to the other. Then I would start tying it into other services, and I might start with something that has very good free IPA support. Um, maybe reach out to places like Nextcloud Cfile, places that I know we've integrated Cfile in with with free IPA in the past. So. Um, those are the kind of places that I would start. And then as you see more success and once you have a solid infrastructure, then start adding stuff to it. Hey, guys, it's been great hanging out with you. This show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at AskNoahShow.com. Throughout the week, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. You can follow me personally at Kernelytics. The Ask Noah Show uh, continues at AskNoahShow.com. Make sure to keep up with us on Twitter. Check out the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow for all of the articles and references we use for this episode. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.